0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we so enjoyed doing our History of Vaudeville podcast that we decided we'd like to talk about some notable performers. So we put out a call on our Twitter, Missed in History, and on our Facebook fan page to see what you guys would like to hear. So these are all listener suggestions and the first one comes from a Twitter follower who said that if we didn't do this he would spite our adorable voices and I don't know what that means but I wasn't willing to risk it. So we're going to start with the Marx Brothers.
0: Welcome to the Sarah and Katie vaudeville show. <laughs> Sketch
1: one, the marxes uh, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, Gummo, and Zeppo, also known as Julius, Arthur, Leonard, Milton, and Herbert and, uh, I think you have to admit that Zeppo is an improvement on Herbert.
0: Herbert Marx does not sound
1: particularly exciting. It's not very stagey. Gummo and Zeppo, of course, were out of the act by
0: 1935, but the others became quite famous. I'm sure you've heard of them. And the Marx brothers were the sons of Jewish German immigrants, and they grew up in Manhattan's east side. And they began in vaudeville as singers, but soon switched to a comedy act. A lot of
1: it was based on immigrant stereotypes and accents, like an Italian accent, for one, and a German accent. And they became stars at the palace.
0: But even though they were playing up this immigrant-based comedy, they surprisingly didn't fall back on a lot of quote-unquote Jewish humor, like some of the other vaudeville acts we'll talk about later. Most of their sketches were actually sort of waspy-type settings.
1: But there are subtle allusions to relevant issues. An article in American Scholar that I was reading uh, recounts a scene from their movie Monkey Business and I'm quoting from the article. Groucho snidely informs an Indian chief, if you don't like our country, you can go back to where you came from. Earlier in the film, after a horrendous pun by Chico, Groucho turns to face the camera and declares, there's my argument, restrict immigration. This at a time when the Patrician Immigration Restriction League had warned against the corrupting influence of physically, morally, and politically, in quotes, degenerate Jews.
0: But while this is, you know, kind of this politically outrageous sketch, they also did a lot of um, outrageous physical comedy and outrageous costumes, blonde wigs, the Italian accents we talked about, painted-on mustaches, anarchy and slapstick. I mean, that That's was the their, name of the game. Yeah. I was watching a scene um, before this from *A Night
1: at the Opera*, which is possibly the most popular film on YouTube. And you've got Groucho with his cigar and his glasses and a bushy mustache and eyebrows and he keeps inviting more and more people into this tiny little room with quips about how crowded it is it's like a clown car you know he keeps saying stuff like tell them to send up a bigger room too will you and then another woman opens the door and everyone comes flying out and that's one of their most famous scenes
0: So a lot of the folks we're going to talk about later have really successful careers beyond vaudeville, and that's really more why we know them today. And if you're going to think of one of the Marx brothers going on like that, it's definitely got to be Groucho. He's the guy who most people consider to be the the real star of the operation.
1: And he ended up on Long Island hanging out with all the rich people and feeling terribly out of place by his own accounts. A lot of their work before this, too, had ended up uh, playing on the idea of exclusion and of people feeling out of place. So we're just continuing the theme a bit.
0: Okay, our second act is going to be Evelyn Nesbitt. And obviously, vaudeville wasn't all about comedy routines like the Marx Brothers. We've got chorus girls, too. And Evelyn Nesbitt is kind of the epitome of a chorus girl. She's the first major it girl of the 20th century. And for a time, she might have been one of the most famous people in the United States. She was born in 1884, and her father's
1: early death forced the teenage Nesbitt to get into modeling and acting. She ended up being drawn by Charles Dana Gibson, which so is she's a Gibson. Girl. pretty cool, yeah. and she gets into entertainment and performance. She enters Broadway as one of the Floridora girls who are. Pretty, prim young women being serenaded by men in frock coats.
0: Yeah, we actually have a line from from that act. The gentleman would say, Prithee, tell me, pretty maiden, are there any more at home like you? To which the maidens would reply, there are a few kind, sir, but simple girls and proper, too. So you remember from our earlier podcast on vaudeville, that was a big, the family friendliness of the acts was a big thing. They had to be you know, not too risqué. Even if it comes across as slightly creepy. So at 16, she took
1: up with a man named Stanford White, who was 46 and had designed things like the Washington Square Arch. So he's he's a notable figure. And he supported her and her family, wined and dined her, and had her sit on his red velvet swing and kick at a wall of paper parasols, his own particular
0: fetish. Very creepy fetish. So eventually their relationship turns abusive when he rapes her after she's passed out. And she calls him a benevolent vampire. She feels like she can't leave him after this. And um, she's she's got kind of a mixed idea about it, though, her whole life there. She says that he's the only man who she ever loved. But by the time she's 17, he's mostly interested in really young girls. And she's sort of... Starting to look for new bows. John Barrymore is one of the men who's
1: available, and as is a man named Harry K. Thaw. And Thaw was a millionaire son of a a railroad slash coal baron. He lived in a castle over his mills and begged Miss Nesbitt to marry him and his millions, even though the other showgirls gossiped about how he whipped Girls. So again, clearly we're not getting into a good relationship.
0: No, and she manages to hold him off for a while. Uh, She's still somewhat involved with Stanford White. White actually gets her into a New Jersey boarding school for a time to study music and literature. Um, The school's run by Cecil B. DeMille's mother, too, on a side note. Um, She eventually has an operation for what is officially disclosed as appendicitis. And after she's recuperated enough, Thaw takes Evelyn and her mother abroad, and this is where things get really bad. Her mother is very disturbed by Thaw's mood swings. He's sadistic and um, goes from being just, you know, worshipping the two of them to freaking out at waiters, yanking off tablecloths. She's really bothered by this, so she leaves her daughter alone with him, and... Their relationship, too, gets violent. He whips her and beats her and finally gets her to confess the details about her relationship with Stanford White. And he's just driven mad by jealousy at this point. He's always wanted to save her from Stanford White, but he hates that their relationship was sexual. After a second trip to Europe,
1: Evelyn gets appendicitis again, at which point you have to make the conclusion that Perhaps it wasn't appendicitis that's the issue. We're talking about abortion. And this is when she finally agrees to marry Thaw, who is still completely obsessed with
0: White. And at a 1906 performance, Thaw finally runs into Stanford White and shoots him. And this becomes just the most sensational trial you can imagine. It's called the crime of the century, even though I think we're kind of jumping the gun. <laughs> it's in a little early 1906. in the century. <laughs> But the first trial is a hung jury. The second acquits Thaw by reason of insanity. Nesbitt actually testifies after this huge monetary promise from Thaw's mother, which she never ends up receiving. But um, her her testimony, she actually holds her own during
1: it. The story of her life was made into a film, The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, which clearly is not as innocuous as it might sound, and she died in 1967. But one of the favorite tidbits we came across researching her was a headline from the New
0: York Times from 1907. That headline is, Baby Named Evelyn Nesbitt, Father in Kalamazoo Objected, But Mother Had Her Way. Which, I mean, the news doesn't get any better than that, I think. Next on the stage, we have
1: one W.C. Fields, whose comedy shtick was about being misanthropic, hating women and children, um, anti-establishment, and quite fond of the bottle. He might kind of remind you of Larry David, actually. Curb your enthusiasm. But but better, I think. My first experience with W.C. Fields was when I was a small child, and it was scarring. I was at MGM Studios and went up to the W.C. character And asked for his autograph in my little book, and he told me how awful children were, and I cried. And my mom tried to explain to me that he was a comedian, and that's what he did. But I think she was angry on my behalf. Really maybe not a good character to have at MGM, walking around talking to the kids. (laughs) But if you've never seen him, he's he's very recognizable. He's this round man in a top hat with a, a big red bulbous nose.
0: He was born William Claude Dukenfield in 1880, and he was of a British background. He had a pretty complicated home life, as almost all of our vaudevillians do. And, um, it, you know, some describe it as happy, others as miserable. It was probably sort of a mixture of the two. He described
1: himself as a bratty, repulsive child, and he started his career as a juggler in his teens. His act on the vaudeville stage was a juggling tramp. He also went on to the Ziegfeld Follies before becoming a movie star, and he wrote a lot of his own stuff for the movies, but under really awesome synonyms like Mahatma Kane Jeeves. And if you've ever heard Mae West's famous movie line, come up and see me sometime, the other half of that was Fields, who responded, mmm, I will,
0: my little chickadee. But Fields also fit the stereotype of the comedian as a haunted man. His marriage to his wife, Hattie, was... Pretty rough. Um, he met her on stage and he wouldn't give up his life as a traveling performer. We've learned already about these vaudevillians traveling on huge circuits all the time, different city every night, practically. And she wouldn't divorce him because she was Catholic. And so they just had this long, drawn out, very unhappy relationship. He was estranged from his son, Claude, and had a tense relationship even
1: with his mistress and a non-existent one with their illegitimate son. But he put this all into his work. Some of the kid and wife characters, which are never, ever flattering, are very obviously based on his own family. Sometimes they're even named
0: by their names. Possibly in part because of his loneliness and the hardness of his life, he's driven to alcoholism, and he spends his later years in pretty bad health and also got the reputation of being pretty difficult to work with, and that's what made his career flounder later on. Not that Hollywood was
1: treating him the way he'd like. He was being offered complete dreck, to be honest, and he later switched to radio, finding that it served him a bit better. But again, he was in ill health and he had cirrhosis from his drinking. Supposedly he was drinking a case of gin a week by the time he ended up in the hospital. And in the weeks before he died, he was said to have been found reading the Bible. And when his friends saw him, you know, he was known for hating religion among many, many other things. They asked him why
0: and he said he was looking for loopholes. W.C. Fields didn't just like gin, though, apparently, because one of his most famous quotes is, I like children fried, <laughs> perhaps with a little bit of ranch or some blue cheese on the side. And that brings us to our next act. And our next act is Bojangles, who is one of the most famous soft shoe and tap dancers of his age.
1: And he was born Luther Robinson on May 25, 1878, in Richmond, Virginia. And his parents died when he was just an infant. So he was raised by his grandmother, uh, didn't get a lot of education, and started dancing at age six
0: for pennies at beer gardens, which is is the saddest little story. Yeah, but he must be pretty good at it because at age 12, he joins a traveling company, the South before the war, and eventually goes on a vaudeville circuit. And his agent, Marty Forkins, helps make him really famous, launch him into that lower level of vaudeville to the headliner act. And he's eventually performing for white audiences starring in Blackbirds of 1928 and putting on this dapper, genteel front from then on. He does soft shoe and tap. And you can think of him as one of the great dance step originators, too. He invents something called the stair dance. And a, a kind of strange thing about him, he's as good at running backwards as most people are running forwards. Eventually, he became a film star, too. He was in The Little Colonel
1: in Old Kentucky, The Littlest Rebel, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, and he was
0: often partnered with Little Shirley Temple. And he makes a lot of money, up to $6,600 in a week for a time, but he dies poor because he's very generous to his friends and to people in need, Uh, but he's also got a pretty bad gambling habit, especially gambling on the Yankees, which there was an article about why he might be the biggest Yankees fan of all time. Um, But he would even arrange his schedule around the games and own part of the New York Black Yankees as well. He was an honorary mayor of Harlem before he died
1: November 25th, 1949 in New York. And now we're going to talk about someone we got a lot of requests for, Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce was one of the great comedians and singers of vaudeville. She was born Fania Borach in 1891 to immigrant parents. Her mother was from Budapest, her father from Alsace, and she hailed from the Lower East Side. Her parents owned a saloon there, but her dad was kind of a deadbeat and a gambler, And Fanny herself wasn't very fond of school. She did
0: like singing, though. And after she sang a song in an amateur contest called When You Know You're Not Forgotten by the Girl You Can't Forget, she won five bucks and she was just hooked on the stage at that point and dropped out of school after eighth grade. And her career shoots off right from there. It didn't exactly start off
1: shiningly. She got hired and then quickly fired for a George M. Cohen show and then ended up with a touring company that went broke. So her next option was Burlesque, and this is when she changed her name, possibly to sound less Jewish. Her big break was singing Sadie Salome, Go Home, and to give you some sample lyrics from the song, don't do that dance, I tell you, Sadie, that's not a business for a lady. Most everybody knows that I'm your loving Mose. oi, 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 where is your clothes? And it's a funny take on what's supposed to be a sexy scene, the disrobing Salome. And the notable thing about this is that she sang it in a Yiddish accent. But she didn't know any Yiddish. They thought she, quote-unquote, looked Jewish, and so she was encouraged to fake the accent by Irving Berlin, no
0: less, and that's when she made her mark as a Jewish comedian. She goes on to become a big success in the Ziegfeld Follies, but it wasn't all good times for Fanny Bryce. For one thing, at least part of her chafed at being categorized as a comic actress. That's not all she wanted to do. She wanted to broaden her repertoire
1: into drama and become a, you know, serious actress in caps, but no one was interested in Fanny Bryce as a dramatist. They were interested in her as a comedian only. And she also married badly to a man named Nicky Arnstein who happened to be an adulteress and possibly bigamous thief. It's just one step up from Evelyn Nusbitt there. He went to Sing Sing for wiretapping and later to Leavenworth after Five million dollars in bonds mysteriously disappeared, uh, but she wouldn't leave him. He left her and her kids first, and she finally decided to get a divorce.
0: But he did inspire her famous torch song, "My Man," which we have a few lyrics from it. It's cost me a lot, but there's one thing that I've got: it's my man. And that's the one serious thing she did that people loved. It was an
1: older song that had been, you know, translated, but her version of it was something that was difficult. To forget, And when she sang, it was clear she was singing about Arnstein, and since his rather criminal pursuits were fairly public,
0: people knew what it meant. In the 1920s, she gets a nose job, and this is partly her own idea of how to escape this role that she's been typecast in. But she stars in some more films, they flop, and she ends up marrying Bill Rose, and that doesn't really work out either. She found some real stardom in radio with a character called Baby
1: Snooks, who was a bratty little girl and who didn't have an accent.
0: Because she didn't have an accent in that program, she felt like it gave her better mass appeal.
1: And the movie Funny Girl, with one Barbara Streisand, is said to have been modeled after her life. And I have to give a research mention to the Jewish Women's Archive at jwa.org, which was really helpful this one but that brings us to our next act which is gypsy rose lee and june havoc and at the time we're recording this june havoc uh, recently died so this is fairly timely if you've heard of or seen the musical Gypsy, the movie version has Rosalind Russell and Natalie Wood. It's based on Gypsy Lee's memoir and paints their mother, Mama Rose, as the most insane stage mother you've ever heard of. And June hated the musical. She's quoted as saying, Mother was very prim and she was tiny and lovely with big blue eyes. She was endearing and alluring beyond belief. If she had drive and ambition, what's wrong with that? So that's the word from June Havoc.
0: Louise Rose Hovick was born in Seattle, and June Hovick in Vancouver. Supposedly, Louise weighed a whopping 12 pounds, but won a healthy baby contest, nevertheless. After their parents' marriage ended, Mama Rose saw the stage as salvation for the family.
1: Louise wasn't great at singing or dancing, but June was a natural. She was on the vaudeville stage at 18 months, and baby June, as her personage was known, was famous and making major money by age six. But she wanted to grow up and stop being Dainty June, her name after she outgrew baby. Um, and at 13, she married a boy she'd met on the stage, and her mother promptly tried to shoot him. Um, but we do have to make a note that mom also had a bunch of forged birth certificates, so who knew how old she really was.
0: After June got married and left show business, life was tough for her. You know, after all, it's the depression, and times are hard for anyone.
1: She and her husband entered a marathon dance contest when you literally danced till you dropped. And if you won, you'd get fed. And if you didn't, well, you know, you were the one who dropped on the floor. And her marriage wasn't working, but they stayed together for professional reasons. She went on to be a success, though, although not as famous as her sister. She wrote and directed plays, wrote a memoir, performed on Broadway. She acted in film. June did pretty well for herself, and she was quoted in the New York Times as saying, My sister was beautiful and clever and ruthless. My mother was endearing and adorable and lethal. They were the same person. I was the fool of the family, the one who thought I really was loved for me, for myself.
0: So moving on to Gypsy, life wasn't easy for her either. She's not the cute or the charming one. And Mama Rose makes them shoplift and lie about everything. So she has this very manipulated childhood. And it's harder for the not blonde, not adorable sister. She plays a boy in their act most of the time. And um, just a tough stage life.
1: And when June left, Louise finally had a chance in the Dancing Daughters to make her name, but this was during vaudeville's dying breaths. So instead, she turned to stripping in seedy places. But soon she'd polished her act. She made it funny and sexy instead of just bump and grind. She wasn't even fully naked. And she became a star, and everyone came to see her. And supposedly her mother's dying words were about taking Louise to the grave with her. So that's the last word on Mama Rose.
0: So our final act for the show is Windsor McKay, who is a newspaper cartoonist and an animation pioneer. He's gonna play into vaudeville though, I promise. He was born in 1867 and in his early twenties he worked as a poster and a billboard artist. And he eventually gets a job as an illustrator and cartoonist in Cincinnati, moves to New York, develops two pretty popular strips there. And by 1905, he's made his most famous creation, which is Little Nemo in Slumberland. And I used to have a Little Nemo comic book, and it's pretty cool. If you've never, if you've never seen it, you should look it up. It's really surrealist. There's not much plot, because after all, they're dreams. And they're just these beautifully rendered drawings, and really unconventional in how they're laid out on the page.
1: In 1909, he had a very popular vaudeville act where he did speed drawings of his cartoon characters as well as caricatures. And if you think watching a cartoonist draw sounds boring, Sarah can assure you that it is not.
0: Yeah, it's really pretty cool to watch a cartoonist speed draw. I saw Cal from The Economist at a Second City performance. And I mean, just somebody with a transparency in a pen and they're uh, creating political figures or celebrities who you can recognize with just a few strokes. Pretty neat. McKay started to play around with animation
1: sometime after this and did an animated version of Little Nemo that he added to the vaudeville shows. And he followed this with 1912's How a Mosquito Operates and in 1914, Gertie the Dinosaur.
0: Which, Gertie the Dinosaur was a pretty pioneering film. It was the first feature character created just for an animated film. Before that the characters had been pulled from the comic strips and it took ten thousand drawings to make up the film and he had to draw each one by hand because they didn't know how to make a stationary background at this time. Sort of like how you'd imagine the Flintstones. There's action going on and then there's just the the rubble behind them throughout the entire Imagine thing. drawing that for every cell. But even though the dino
1: animation was really popular, William Randolph Hearst, a subject of a previous podcast, made McKay stick to print cartoons. His next film wasn't until 1918, The Sinking of the Lusitania, which used cell animation cutting down on the drawing time.
0: And McKay died in 1934, but a lot of his techniques influenced the work of animators later on. Uh, you know, a lot of the great Disney movies you think of from... 30s, 40s, and 50s are influenced by McKay's work. And uh, I guess that brings our vaudeville act to a close. The curtain has closed. We have one honorable mention, though. And that is Joseph Pujol, whose
1: French stage name translates roughly as The Fartiste, and it's pretty much
0: exactly what it sounds like. Yep, he was able to break wind on demand, which obviously brought in some audience members. And that one was suggested to
1: us by a Twitter follower, so thank you for that. And if you're interested in slightly more conventional pursuits, you could check out our article, How Juggling Works, if you search our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.